Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. We are sharing a call we made to Michigan today. It's with author Jennifer Traig. As you all know, Michigan is our favorite place on earth. My husband is from Michigan. I met him in Los Angeles and he was wearing a Detroit Tigers baseball cap. It was the first thing we talked about. Uh, My grandparents met as kids uh, in northern Michigan. And we've both had family cottages there for a million years. It's the best place on earth. But I should also point out that when we recorded this conversation, it was before the polar vortex. I have a feeling Things would have taken a turn (laughs) if we had talked about this during the polar vortex. Holy moly, how did you all fare? What did you do with your kids? I want to know all the secrets. I mean, there are a lot of downsides to raising my children in Los Angeles, uh, mostly that there are so many billboards with boobs all over them. But I was feeling pretty good about living in L.A. during the polar vortex. We were all complaining about rain. So I'm going to make a post on our Facebook private community page and on Instagram because I want all the details. I want to know what did you do with them? What were the high points? What were the low points? Uh, I have a feeling that if I did a post-polar vortex check-in, my guest today would say she's packing up a U-Haul to move down south because she had had enough of all of this winter stuff before, you know, before the vortex. So Jennifer Traig is the author of Well Enough Alone, A Cultural History of My Hypochondria, She's also the author of Devil in the Details, Scenes from an Obsessive Girlhood. So we're going to touch on both of those books, but our main topic today is the cultural history of misadventures in parenting, her new book titled Act Natural. Here's her book trailer that got me hooked. Mostly what I'm looking at uh, throughout history is the weirder things parents have done, the worst decisions they have made. One of the things that surprised me was things that I thought were natural and inevitable and biological turned out to be totally cultural, like crawling, uh, which is something that parents for hundreds of years actively discouraged. And if they saw their kids doing it, they would hit their knees and knock them down because they thought crawling was too animal-like. Another bad choice that parents made in the Victorian era was uh, copious use of opiates uh, and gin and soothing syrups for both their children and themselves with no dosage guidelines, and that did not end well for a lot of families. I was also surprised that parenting is so recent. The verb itself only dates until the 1970s, uh, and there's a good reason for that. It's because parents didn't do it. They left the child rearing up to servants, to older children, to neighbors, to nature, and they didn't feel any guilt for it. The one thing I took away from the book, uh, which is in no way a how-to, because parents did really awful things, but I did start doing less, and my kids liked that, and I liked that, Um, and so far we're all alive, so we'll probably stick with that approach. Jennifer Trague, thank you so much for coming on Atomic Moms, and, you know, act natural. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm going to dispute the Michigan thing. (gasps) You don't like it? Normally, I will normally... 
I love it here. I agreed to move here because everyone I had met from Michigan was so great. It seemed like the perfect place to raise children. And, and it is until you get to winter and we're on our third snow day in a week and I want to murder someone. Most of the time, it's great though. That seems really unfair. Like the kids get off from school for the holidays and then they get off again because of snow days. And then it messes up your summer, I bet, because it's so beautiful in the summer. But you guys are probably in school then to make up for the snow days. And then we go over. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry about that. You should come visit us in L.A. I'd love to. I'm from California. I'm not built for this. No. Yeah, I agree. That's why we only visit family there in the summer. (laughs) I'm not either. When it is, it's paradise. Yeah. We're going to talk about this incredible book. I was laughing hysterically the past several nights in bed, and my husband was getting so annoyed with me. And he's like, I thought that was a book about history. Like, what are you giggling about? And he usually has a sense of humor, but he felt really left out. Before we get into all of that, I want to talk about a family tradition that you all hold near and dear to your hearts because family traditions are super important to Atomic Moms. We talk about creating our own. So you must share with our listeners the special holiday that your family celebrates on December 25th. Mm-hmm. Bad choices day. Yeah, it is it's definitely our favorite day of the year. Um, and it started because um, I'm Jewish and my husband eventually converted, but he grew up Episcopalian. And, um, you know, December 25th was just a really hard day in our house because if, if you're not celebrating Christmas, it's really boring. And our kids picked up on that really early and wanted something special. And in the meantime, year round, whenever they asked to do something you know, that was a terrible idea. I would say, you know, it's not bad choices day. Um, and eventually they asked, when is bad choices day? So we decided, well, of course, it's December 25th. We got a whole day to fill. Uh, so we started, we've done it maybe five years now. Um, and the rules are very simple. You can do whatever you want as long as it does not hurt yourself or anyone else. Um, so you can wear what you want. You can eat what you want. You can watch what you want. Um, that was when our son said the F word for the first time, which he was very excited about. Um, and uh, yeah, we all look forward to it all year round. I think I, I was reading in your article for Slate that, did he go to the bathroom to say it? He did. He was he was very young at the time. And uh, so I felt bad having him just like curse a blue streak in front of people. So we said, you know, if you go to the bathroom, you can say it. Uh, and he did. I think he said it three, three times, maybe. He was very proud of himself. <laughs> Okay. So speaking of bad choices, what I gather from your book is that we have made a lot of bad choices uh, throughout history. You know, the New York Times calls your book a brisk survey of child rearing tips through the ages. And I'm curious, how did you come up with this topic? And how did you go about doing the research? You know, I mean, I when we first had our kids, and, and what I love about your podcast is that it, it constantly reminds us how hard it is. You know, it's not this Instagram perfect world where the kids are always clean and, and not on screens and playing with wooden toys. And um, <laughs> it was just from the beginning so impossible. And I thought I knew I had a nephew at that point. Most of my friends had kids. I'd seen it, you know, boots on the ground. And it was still so much harder than I was expecting. And, you know, I'm a writer and an editor. I, I did not bring any skills to the table. My husband's a political scientist. He was no help either. So, you know, we did the only thing we're trained to do, which was read um, and quickly learned that 
through most of history, the choices that parents made were so much worse than the ones that we were making on a daily basis. And yet somehow humanity has survived, uh, which which made us both feel a lot better. I have some Reader's Digest from actually our family cottage up in Michigan from the 1930s. Oh. And just getting oh. to like go through those essays and actually have them like hanging on this wall now, I that was fascinating to me. But like mm-hmm. you go way back. Did you just go to the library? How do you find this information out? Well, first, I, I wasted a couple of weeks on the wrong search term, which in retrospect is pretty obvious, but I was looking for information on parenting. Um, and that word is only 40 years old. Uh, so I wasn't finding anything there. As it turns out, there's no history of parenting because there's no history of parenting. Um, eventually, I started looking for child rearing, and that brought up a lot more, um, but not that much. Um, there's not a lot in the historical record, um, and what there is is terrifying. Um, yeah, I mean, parents just didn't see it as their job. Their job was to have the kids, but once they were born, actually doing the day-to-day raising of them often fell to other family members or to enslaved staff or to paid staff, uh, but it wasn't necessarily the parent's job. I was really disturbed by 1780s France when you described the wet nurse system. Will you Can you believe that? <laughs> tell yeah. our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. So of the, you know, more than 10,000 children that were born in Paris that year, I think all but 800 were sent out to wet nurses. I mean, I, I, I think about that all the time, that like, what if everyone in my town sent their child up to, say, rural Canada uh, and <laughs> said, we'll see you in five years. We'll be back to pick you up for kindergarten. We're sending you to live with someone we've never met, but it'll be fine. And that's what everyone did. And it was just like a dude, you yeah. know, taking these babies away like there yeah, wasn't even a woman there. I mean, they must have been hungry on the road, and like, yeah, there obviously weren't. It was car a guy seats. on a pack mule. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you were lucky, he might have a cart. If you were really lucky, there would already be a wet nurse on the cart, but that wasn't standard. Um, and he would toss the baby into a basket and take the the uh, infant on the long journey to the countryside to meet his wet nurse, who may or may not. Be actually be a wet nurse um, because sometimes prepubescent girls pretended to be wet nurses uh, for the money and then just fed the children uh, like a mixture of flour and water. What's the worst parenting advice you dug up for this book? Um, the Rousseau stuff is crazy. So that's from like the 17th, 18th centuries when parents were desperate for parenting advice. And the closest thing there was, was this philosophical uh, treatise, Emile, which I was probably assigned in college. I definitely did not read. Um, And parents took it as an actual parenting manual. And Rousseau, who, by the way, had, I think, six kids and gave every single one of them up. He kept no record of their names. He didn't even know their genders. Um, So apparently was very good to his dog, but a terrible father. And he wrote this book saying that you should toughen your kids by sending them out to live outside basically all the time, denying them food, denying them clothes, scaring them by shooting off guns near their heads, uh, throwing spiders at them, putting fright masks on yourself to terrify them. And parents actually did it. And this would toughen them up. Is That's the idea? Yeah, that it would, you know, harden them. Um, Oh, and he didn't want you to teach them to read either. And 
you know, a generation of kids were raised with this. It was, oh, you know, only among the upper classes. Marie Antoinette was a fan. It was sort of like tod- the toddler yoga of the day. It was very trendy among uh, the the hoi or the, among the the fancy people. And a lot of kids died because. <laughs> Being left to starve outside in the winter is not very healthy. And the ones who survived were jerks because they hadn't been socialized at all. What do you believe is the root cause of the mom blame game? Because like what you're saying, I kind of want to just blame Rousseau and a bunch of men who have like created the parenting system through the ages. Yeah, why yeah, I don't I don't know anything infuriating. But women have pretty much always been blamed, um, sometimes more than others. You know, it, it's hard to blame the dude who's not there. You know, when, <laughs> when when dads do zero of it, you can't really blame them for doing it wrong if they're not doing it at all. So, you know, a woman made an easy target because they were actually the ones when parents were doing it, it was mothers doing it for the most part, except for the only time um, was um, during the Puritan age when women weren't trusted enough to raise children, that it was um, because children's souls were so valuable and holy and women were so untrustworthy because of Eve and native stupidity, men took over. Um, And they took over not just the instruction, but actually, you know, staying up with them at night. And uh, yeah, that's the only time in our history that I know of that that men have taken it on. Will you share a little bit about the you know, you don't get much into this, but speaking of that that time period in America where with the Puritan mindset of child rearing, that if a child ended up with Native Americans, are there instances where those children you mentioned in the book that they didn't want to go back? Yeah. Do you remember reading about anything about that? Because that's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a number of instances of this where um, uh, children were kidnapped by native tribes and a ransom would be given for their return and they wouldn't come back because they had much better lives uh, in tribal societies that were uh, more egalitarian, um, that treated children much better. Um, And yeah, no one wanted to go back uh, to, you know, sit in church all day and in the Puritan communities, play was actually illegal. Children were routinely whipped for, you know, playing ball. And they had it, they had it much better in, in tribal societies. And so then that mindset kind of really continued on into the 1900s in American parenting and this idea of this paranoia of overmothering that you write about in the 1940s. Oh, John Watson? Yeah. Yes. So I want to talk some shit about John Watson. Um, okay, so he was the author of the 1928 book, Psychological Care of Infant and Child. Just go ahead, because I have some personal stories about, I think, this, but tell our listeners about John Watson. Sure. I'm sure he's mentioned, by the way, in your Framed Reader's Digest. Up in Probably, Texas. yeah. Yes. I mean, he was he was very prominent. So he, he, I mean, he wasn't a quack. He was the head of the American Psychological Association. He was the preeminent psychologist in America and one of the founders of behaviorism, which argued that you should raise your children in a purely clinical manner, entirely hands-off. You would ruin them if you showed them any affection. He wanted children to be raised sort of in factories or rotated through homes so that caregivers wouldn't develop attachments. Uh, 
And he raised his own children this way. And they turned out terrible. They were terribly damaged. I think, you know, several of them attempted suicide, at least one or two succeeded. And, uh, and again, like he was not a crack crackpot. He was the voice of psychology and early childhood psychology in America at the time. You know, I'll, I'll never forget my grandmother, you know, speaking of Northern Michigan, I'll, we were up there one summer at the family cottage and she called, my mother's mother called me out for like touching my belly. Right. And she was like, why, you keep touching your belly. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm pregnant. And <laughs> I guess <laughs> I was like six or seven months pregnant. I was like, I guess I'm just trying to feel connected to her. Like I hadn't really noticed that I was doing it, but it was so off-putting to her that I would, like, touch my stomach (laughs) as though, like, I was already spoiling the baby inside me. And I'm like, whoa, this goes so far back in our family. Like, that idea of, yeah, you don't want to spoil the child. You don't want to pick her up. You know, that that's, I just think of the way that my mother was raised and Mm -hmm. stories about my grandparents as children and you're like, we were definitely, I'll use the word infected mm-hmm. by that mindset of John Watson, like what he espoused. And it makes me sad to think that whoever started that, my great grandparents or whoever, that that they thought they were doing what was right to raise oh, sure. their children in a way that they would be resilient and strong and you know, proper members of society, whatever. Right. But it's so no, they crazy because they were, they were, love. they were, yeah, they were trying to be good parents by doing that. It makes me so yeah. sad. Yeah. Yeah. Fighting your every natural impulse to, yeah, not pick up your screaming child. Yeah. 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 He was kind of like a, I picture him as a sort of a Don Draper and he did go on to have a very successful career on Madison Avenue consulting for advertising agencies. I mean, he is the one who invented the coffee break, for which I think we can all be very grateful. Uh, the rest of it, though, was a terrible idea. Yeah, well, clearly he was really good at marketing his ideas, though. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah. Wow. So this past week, The Atlantic shared an essay adapted from your book, and it's about sibling rivalry. And I'd love to share this quote. It's, For many of us, our relationships with our siblings are the most profound relationships in our lives, more important and influential than the ones we have with our parents. They are, in fact, the only relationship many of us have for life with someone who's around from the beginning until the end. Humans generally maintain lifelong sibling relationships. We're one of the few species that does, which gives us a long, long time to hold a grudge. (laughs) So (laughs) will you share with us a little bit about what you discovered about the sibling relationship in your research. And I'd also love to know a little bit about the sibling dynamics in your own household. Yes, yes, which improved, I have to say, since I wrote the book, uh, when they were sort of at the height of their fighting. Yeah, it, you know, it takes up generally so much of my time. And especially when I was writing the book, they were fighting all the time. And I felt like I was, all I was doing was refereeing. And so, you know, I started doing the research on that. It was very strange to find while there's a lot of, you know, going back to the 
Bible. There's so much stuff on sibling fighting and sibling rivalry. Clearly, this has been a part of humanity since the very beginning. But there's very little about parents saying this is a problem. In fact, like a lot of times, they seem to encourage it, um, especially in the Bible. They're always getting involved and siding with one child over the other. And it becomes clear that the idea that you would treat your children the same is really new, that previous generations treated children very differently, usually based on birth order. And it was fine to love one child more and to give one child more. And even today, I would say when, when, when surveys are taken and parents are very honest, we still think of our children very differently. We maybe even love them differently. We just do it secretly. But yeah, in studies, it shows that like about two thirds of parents admit they have a favorite child. They just won't say who it is. And then you said that this that the children agree that the parent has a favor, but they're wrong about that. Yes. So yes. what's I that mean, about? I think it's overcompensating that <laughs> you know the parent knows that in their heart they love this one best, but they don't want the other ones to know, so they treat the other ones better. Like ironically, the most loved child may be the one who is treated the most poorly. You guys, we're so great at this parenting thing. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, we've got it all solved. We're experts now. (laughs) Overall, what do you hope that parents will take away from this uh, research and how screwed up we have always been throughout the times and, um, you know, really across cultures? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I know what I took away was I felt so much better that I stopped beating myself up because, you know, number one, I had not as many parents did, left my children on a dung heap to either die or be claimed by someone else to just, you know, be there. You get an A plus if you are there every day and you are feeding your children something and they have clothes to wear and you hug them from time to time, you're doing better than 99% of parents have done through history. So yay for you. Uh, It just, it lowered the bar for me. And I, I feel like that made us all happier because I was less stressed out and the kids noticed. Do you think that there's more of an obsession today with getting this parenting thing right than in the past? Do you think we're more obsessed now or have we always been obsessed with it? But now, unfortunately, the obsession is with like always being present with them, which is like way more work for us. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, we spend more time with our children than parents have at any point in history. Um, And yet we feel guiltier than parents throughout history. Um, And part of it, I think, is that um, like in previous generations, if your kid turned out badly, the parents weren't blamed. Um, The devil might be blamed, but it wasn't because you sent them to daycare. And now we do that and we judge each other and we beat up ourselves. And it's true that like, you know, our kids aren't going to have as easy of a ride as we have just because the income and quality is, is has shifted so much that it is going to be harder for them to maintain, you know, the standard of living that they grew up with. And I think we're all kind of panicking about that. Um, and how do we, you know, arm our own children to succeed in a society that's changing in ways we're not entirely prepared for. Yeah, like everybody's super anxious. Mm -hmm. But at least we don't send our kids off with hobos on pack meals to wet nurses in the country. I'm so excited to get my hands on your 2004 memoir, Devil in the Details. It's about your undiagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder as a child. 
Can you share with us a little bit of what that looked like and how did you, because I haven't had a chance to read it yet, like how did you come out the other side? Unfortunately, so this was in the 80s and I think Prozac may have been in drug trials at that point, but certainly not a drug trial that I was on. So I just kind of white knuckled my way through it, uh, which I would not recommend to anyone. This is definitely the dark ages as far as OCD is concerned. People just didn't know the term. And I had a textbook case. I mean, I just, I washed my hands till they were raw. I would, you know, be always doing these little prayers and tapping and touching things. Uh, But even my therapist never used that term with me. And my parents certainly didn't. I mean, they just thought I was acting out or, you know, sort of generically crazy. Um, And they sent me to talk therapy, which is fine, but not a super effective treatment for OCD. But, you know, with that and some behavioral modification and and time, I sort of outgrew it. I was wondering when I had kids if it would flare up again, just because there's yes. so much to worry about. And it didn't. And I think it's because I'm just exhausted. I do not have time. <laughs> Who has time to, you know, ritually wash their hands and count and tap? No, I can't. Also, I'm medicated. That's probably a that lot. That does of it. help, uh, yeah. I imagine. So then your other book, Well Enough Alone, is about your self diagnosed hypochondria and. God, I got to ask you, like, what do you do to handle the hypochondria with having children? Because oh, I know I Isn't that the worst? I don't. Yeah, you know, people joke that I have hypochondria or that I that I'm hypochondriac. I will say that I agreed with them, and then like I had two instances happen to me that make me feel very self righteous whenever anyone says mm-hmm. I'm a hypochondriac. Which one mm-hmm. is? I was diagnosed with a one in a million tumor. <gasps> And then oh the other thing was I went into anaphylactic shock for, oh my God. for like a simple antibiotic that people take for sinus infections and they almost did a tracheotomy. So <gasps> it's like I'm a hypochondriac, but then, you know, my body does really try to kill me. So no, you're just right. <laughs> I'm totally right. <laughs> yes. In certain circumstances. No, but yeah. I will admit to you that I can't. The two kids thing and the preschool cough thing yeah. and the like the I uh, it's the hardest part of parenting for me. Like I'm not yeah. nice about my own kids being sick. I'm not nice about my husband being sick. I'm a total baby about being sick. You know, we go to a party and I can notice a sniffle a mile away and I like want to go home even though I won't. But like the neuroses right. just like I just really flare up there. What What do you do? Yeah, you know, <laughs> everyone has gotten sick so much that I, it, I've gotten a little numb. Fortunately, there haven't been too many too serious run-ins. But yeah, it, it, I mean, the thing about if you, if you have hypochondriac tendencies and then you have kids, it just multiplies because you're just as hypochondriac about them. And they're really bad at telling you what's going on. I cannot count the number of times we've gone to the ER for appendicitis that turned out to be gas. Um, because yeah. they're screaming bloody murder and it really looks like something serious is going right. on. And yeah. And they ate a taco. Yeah. No, I have no advice there because we're doing it. too. I mean, my children are lucky that I'm lazy enough mm-hmm. that my pediatrician is across town. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. not like I'm willing to take them to right. the doctor all the time, <laughs> but I do like when kids come over, I've turned into the crazy parent who's like, everybody washes their hands when they yeah. come in this house and the kids yeah. will look at 
their nanny or their mom and be like, why do I have to, like, why? Yeah. And I'm like, because, because. They're disgusting. Because I'm, I'm, yeah. Because you're disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Because you're disgusting. <laughs> yeah. I know. My kids still lick everything. They're disgusting. Yeah. Oh, how old are they now? Uh, seven and nine. The nine-year-old, I will say, is not licking things anymore. The seven-year-old is still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's, what are they up to these days? Um, they are, uh, yeah. So we've been inside a lot and, um, they set up, we have an arcade in our, uh, in our living room right now, uh, where you can buy tickets and, you know, throw a ball in a cup to win a prize, uh, because we've been inside for two weeks and everyone's going crazy. Look at you, Pinterest mom. That's no, I didn't do it. See, I, I, I am so not the Pinterest mom. I slept I into like 11 one Saturday. And when I came down, they had it all set up. Oh, see, you've done it. So what's the trick? How do you get self-motivated, creative children who come up with their own activities? You sleep into 11 and they get very <laughs> bored and they find some way to entertain themselves. Yes. That's yeah. the best parenting advice we've gotten all year. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jennifer. Oh, it was my great pleasure. How can our listeners find you? Because you don't do social media, right? I'm, I know. It's terrible. I have a Facebook page, and okay. I'm working on getting on Twitter, but I don't even know how to turn on my ringer, so it might take me a little bit. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on Atomic Moms. Okay, everybody, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or if you have an iPhone, you already have an Apple podcast app. So just hit the Apple podcast app, search Atomic Moms, hit subscribe. That way you can get next week's episode and you can also hit up our archives. We have obviously over 200 episodes for you guys available there. You can also get our show notes at AtomicMoms.com. And we love seeing you on Instagram at Atomic Moms. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms.